nothing wrong There's a code of silence and it can't go on Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on August the 25th, 2009. Newcomers should look into CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com website, bookmark all the other sites I have up on that front page. If you scroll down, you'll see them all. And bookmark them for future use because I get problems with the main servers. In fact, at the weekend, Yahoo didn't up, up the limit automatically and I couldn't upload to them. Uh, so they were drawing off the other sites, in fact. So if you bookmark these other sites, that's cuttingthrough.jakeness.com, cuttingthroughthematrix.net.us.ca, uh, Alan Watt, cuttingthroughthematrix.ca, and Alan Watt, sentinel.eu, then you'll be sure to get the latest shows if the main ones go down. Now that last site, the European site, the Sentinel site, has the same audios as the rest, but it also has uh, transcripts of a lot of the talks written in the various languages of Europe, uh, so you can download them for print up if you so desire. Now remember, to say, you, you always, listeners, I should say, bring me to themselves. The listeners bring me to them by buying that which I have for sale at cuttingthroughthematrix.com website. There's not much there. I don't have time to just plug stuff up. I could churn them out like crazy if I had time, but I don't because what I'm doing is more important in these particular hard times. Uh, the world is going through a, trem- a tremendous change. Uh, an old plan is fulfilling its agenda as we live, and it's not a pretty picture. So therefore, I depend upon you to keep me going by donations, etc. You'll find out how to do it at cuttingthroughmatrix.com. You can donate by personal checks from the U.S. and Canada. You can use PayPal, PayPal buttons on the sites. You can use Western Union outside of the U.S. and Canada. Uh, MoneyGram is another one, and some people will send cash, and that gets through okay, because it's important to keep me going. I put out quite a bit of cash here uh, every month uh, on all, all the bills I, I put out for just putting the show up, in fact, even for the, the satellites, not just the purchasing of satellite equipment, but also the rental of the use of it, because you have to pay a lot more for satellite uploading than you do for your regular cable, internet, and so on. Much more expensive. And even then, the speed isn't that great. So it's up to you to keep me going. And as I say, we're going through very, very hard times. Uh, A lot worse to come because I've read the books, I've read the sites, I've read the university sites that deal with the big changes that are underway right now. And it's not, it really is not uh, a good forecast for the general populations of this world. For those who get the discs burned, you can always write to me at Alan Watt, site 41, box 4, Estair, E-S-T-A-I-R-E. Ontario, Canada. Postal code is P as in Peter, 3, E as in Elizabeth, 4, N as in Nora, 1. Because uh, a lot of people don't like to use computer, and luckily enough, there's enough people who will burn hundreds of discs at the talks and pass them around to the, for people to play on their CD players. And we're all kept today uh, intentionally 
in what's called the now. In fact, it's encouraged through all the New Age movements which tie into this whole greening, greening agenda, uh, the conservation agenda that they think it is, in fact. They don't realize really what it is. It's an extermination agenda, in fact. And as I say, you have to go into the university sites and follow them down through the years, follow their publications, and they tell you exactly why things are happening today. Don't live in the now, you've got to know what's coming up. That's the secret of survival. Back with more after this break. If you live in the now, uh, you'll be hammered uh, by tomorrow. Uh, you've got to know what's coming down the pike. And most people really don't know what's coming down. They've had glimpses of things given to them through TV, which is really programming them to accept changes that will come up in the future, almost subliminally. That's how it's presented to the public. They don't realize that everything they enjoy, even in the media entertainment, uh, is there, especially movies, uh, even soaps, and I'll be talking about that later too, uh, is meant to condition them, condition them along certain ways of thinking. It's far easier to have people with their guard down. When you're being entertained, your guard is down. You don't realize that propaganda goes straight into your head then. You don't question it because it's, it's presented in a fictional setting or a dramatic setting, a fictional dramatic setting, and it gets embedded in your mind. And you will never consciously think through the topics that has been presented to you. You simply accept them when they actually come into reality and start to interfere with your own life. You accept them as being somehow normal. That's how the simple technique works. And even before the days of Charles Darwin, there was an elitist group that moved through, through the world, and through Europe especially, and into Britain, kind of made its headquarters in London, uh, often associated with the big international bankers, the merchant bankers. They owned not just the, the banks themselves, but the, the mercantile uh, shipping lines, trade routes, and so on across the world. Incredibly wealthy people. And they themselves have a very interesting background. I've gone through some of the, the history to do with um, a particular uh, religion, religion, a Gnostic-type religion that survived down through the ages. Gone under many names in the past in the books, Cathars, Albigensi, uh, Bogomils, they're all the same group, actually, in different parts of uh, different countries, I should say. And they did have rights of perfection. They believed in perfection, the perfection of man physically. Physically, it wasn't just a um, uh, a sort of uh, self-improvement type of club that they belonged to. It was it was actually through physical, special, selective breeding. And we find this in Charles Darwin's family, and we find the same thing in many of the, the, the members of the Royal Society that Darwin belonged to. They were already practicing selective breeding, and Charles Darwin himself, uh, was, uh, I think, the fourth or fifth uh, generation of Darwins to be born out of the Darwin and the Wedgwood family. That's the only other family they married into. 
they believed, as Huxley said themselves, and Huxley again is descended from the same groups, they're all related. Um, Huxley, Julian Huxley talked about that, and he talked about the, the, the special dominant minority, as his brother Aldo also did. But Julian also said there was a scientific elite that also came out of this group, and he believed that he belonged to the scientific group, especially bred for science. The idea being a very, very old idea, going all the way back to Plato, and before that even Pythagoras, and, and back to Egypt even, because Egyptians were well into uh, selective breeding for, special breeding for kings and queens and their offspring. We don't realize that the same principles of animal husbandry have been applied to elite families long, long ago, thousands of years ago, and it's never stopped today. And therefore, if you can also get um, hereditary royal families that are intermarried with their, with their cousins across waters, as you'll find all across, across Europe, then you could also have uh, a hereditary banking, financial, economic elite as well. They needed a lot of help to get their world into where it's come today. And what they did was create what they called societies with secrets to get middle class people on board from other faiths, etc. And Rosicrucianism broke out later. You got Freemasonry. And even the members themselves generally never knew what they were working towards. The great work is more than what they think it is, even though most of them have a very vague idea of what that even is itself. It's all to do with the perfection of the right kind of humans with the pre-existing belief that there's inferior types that can never be perfected. And they, they crouch under nature. They often talk about nature and the perfection of nature. And, of course, Darwin's job was to help uh, demolish their main opponents, which was the, 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 the big religions that existed that gave some credence and some validity to the right of life for everybody. Everybody. You see, that had to be demolished to bring in this new agenda where only the fittest should obviously survive according to themselves. And uh, Darwin's theories came out, uh, they were, it took off like wildfire amongst the control freak types that you'll find throughout society and in the scientific circles. And they really didn't have a name for, for a collective, unified science group at that time that would coordinate everything together into a political policy. And it was a long time. It was actually Heichel uh, that came up with the, the, the term e ecology. Ecology has to do basically with the economy of nature and how everything plays its part and using the Darwinian principles before a tree can take roots in that little bit of ground there. You've got to get microbes in, fungus in. Everything takes its turn and then dies off until finally everything's prepared for that soil, for that particular seed uh, to get in there, and the tree grows. And they use the same principles to humanity itself. What they mean by this is that everyone who's now classified as junk genes, you know, the, the masses, as they say, uh, are, your, your job is over. You've done all the previous work to get us to this stage. Your ancestors did too. They've fought the wars. They've, they've unified the planet by slaughtering most of the people who objected. 
and we're standardized the planet, we're post-industrial, so now our job, just like the microbes, is pretty well over, you see? And they actually had plans, and this is exactly how they likened this, right back in the days of Darwin, what the future would be, and what the role of the general population would be. People don't realize that pretty well all revolutions down through the Western histories were middle-class revolutions. Some of the first ones, even back in the, the days of William the Conqueror and later, uh, that we find the Domesday Book, etc., came out in England. But it was really the nobility, the upper nobility, that wanted a bigger share of the spoils and the, and, and the rights to make laws and run their own lives. After that, it became middle-class revolutions, basically, which came out again of the merchant classes and the banking classes, who eventually had to eradicate royalty along with the, the religions. Then nothing would stand in their way for their own particular religion to take shape and manifest itself legitimately through politics across the world. And they set up different techniques for, for different areas, geopolitical strategies, then all those countries that became the Soviet Union were designated to get a fast revolution, massive kills, and achieve a standardized system very quickly. The Fabian technique was to be used for the West because we adapt incrementally to things, slow, generation by generation, until within a generation, two, three generations, you can turn the whole society and its morals, its behavior upside down, and that becomes normal because we adapt slowly by increments, you see. If you've noticed recently, for the last few years, uh, we're, we're moving very fast, very fast to the bottom, because you have to destroy all that existed to bring in the new, you see. Otherwise, we'd object. We, liked, we generally like pre-existing uh, ways of living. We become familiar with them, just like sheep in a field, grazing in that familiar field. You get used to the field. And they don't like that at the top, so therefore they give you rapid change, rapid change. Even buildings go up and stand for five years, or some even less now, and they tear them down again. So there's nothing to be familiar with. You can't go back to the old place and say, this is where I was born, and this is where my grandpa walked when he was a boy, and that kind of stuff. They've eradicated the past pretty well everywhere. And as people go along down through the years, isn't it amazing how the media, although they're used as a tool, a, a major tool for indoctrination, never tell you the big things that are really happening, the big shakers and movers that work behind the scenes, that teach at universities, that get this, this sort of uh, religious political movements uh, underway and on the go and into politics without you even knowing about it. Or when they do go into politics, they cover it. They cover it with another uh, symbol so you don't recognize what they are. They're very good at that. Kind of like the Klingons with their ship and their cloak of invisibility. That's how they work, you see. I've always told people, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's a duck. Yeah, it really is. Here's an obituary, for instance, from the Telegraph. On today, from today, 25th of August, on 
Teddy Goldsmith, someone that most folk have never heard of outside academia. Teddy Goldsmith, who died on August the 21st, age 80, was a champion of conservation and organic farming. Sounds nice, right? The elder brother of the billionaire Sir James Goldsmith and founder of The Ecologist magazine and The Ecology Party, which merged later and became The Green Party. We'll be back with the story of this after these messages. the matrix. I'm going to give a little story tonight just to show you how things all tied together. The big octopus ties together and you'll recognize it. And I mentioned too how down through centuries this group have moved along. Always the same, the same agenda. It's not hard to plan a future when you're so incredibly wealthy. In fact, you run the monies of the world. It's not difficult whatsoever. And you can get anyone in any government to do what you want because they all come to you with cap in hand for borrowing money, you see. Governments are awfully good at borrowing money. And that was the big, the big stick. But they also used royalty too and what was left of Europe because all the, the related royalty of Europe today is part of it, you see. They left them. That's why in, say, the British Empire every law that's passed must be signed by the Queen. So what's the use of your parliament? And as far as I know, there's never been anything that the royalties declined to, to sign into law that's been given to them through parliament. Why is that? That they're the protectors of the peoples. So basically, the real agenda was to eliminate all opposition. It has done pretty well, that. And it set up itself through academia, it set up the Communist Party to fast-track the system across different parts of the globe. And then it decided it would also bring that system into the West. That's what the Rees Commission was all about. It was commissioned by the U.S. Congress to look into the left, left-wing uh, parties that were being funded by big foundations. Why were these foundations funding what appeared to be the left-wing uh, communists? Quigley also talked about this, that the Council on Foreign Relations was often uh, mistaken for the co a communist sect because their, their policies were pretty well identical. Carnegie, Ford and Rockefeller set up the CFR. They were the first members outside of Britain. In Britain, they called it the Royal Institute for International Affairs. But that's why CFR is CFR the big guys with the big foundations, with incredible, powerful bankers and a system already established behind them to make sure their policies would go ahead. Getting back to this article from The Telegraph about Teddy Goldsmith, founder of The Ecologist magazine, a recent term really, a recent, I don't even call it a science because it's a political agenda, uh, that goes under the guise of uh, nature and uh, being in balance with nature, stemming right from Darwin, you see. So, so he helped found the Ecology magazine and the Ecology Party, which it says here later became the Green Party. Now, what it doesn't say, 
as it Madeleine Albright's, so I think it was her grandfather, her father or grandfather, was a good friend of Stalin, and uh, he was the one who, along with Goldsmith, created the Green Party. And by the way, for people in Britain, they should look into the founders of the Green Party in the different areas of England. You'll be surprised, awfully surprised, at some of their names. And it says here that uh, over the years, this belief that man could only live on a small-scale traditional society, this is about Goldsmith here, that cost him friends and allies as the Green Movement drifted gradually to the political left, only did that because it was told to, his stubbornly conservative vision and his commitment to stability, stability, tradition, and the teachings of ancient religions were at odds with the views of progressive green proponents of multiculturalism and social justice. That's all ballyhoo, because, you see, they needed all these things to bring in a world society that they then take orders from a United Nations. You see? It says, in 1970, he traveled the world, studied the socio-economics of pre-industrial cultures, struggling to survive the pressures of technological progress, he launched the Ecologist with money from his brother. And the cover of his first issue showed a man suffocating in a pile of rubble. He says there were articles in Eskimos, the toxicity of foods left, infected farm animals, and the population explosion. See, that was the real thing behind it. They always used the cover of nature and wanted to save it. He says here, Another commentator, Dominic Lawson, located Teddy Goldsmith on the wilder fringes of the environmentalist movement and said this, a friend of mine once heard Teddy Goldsmith insist that the optimum population for the planet was 50,000. This is what we're dealing with. These are the guys who lead and uh, have led in the past the ecology greening globalist movement. Darwinist, you see, it's pure Darwinism. And people have never heard of him, except those involved in the movement. That's quite something else, isn't it? When you go into it, this is a say, then you ask yourself, why is it the press in the last few years, especially, and definitely in the last year, have been on and on about uh, and given so much credence to Sir Crispin Tickle, head of the Optimum Population Trust. Now I should mention too that Goldsmith and these characters I'm about to mention, John Holdren and Harrison Brown, were all friends of each other and friends of Charles Galt and Darwin because they belonged to the International Eugenics Society before they were better known for their Ecology and saving the planet in Greening. Back with more after this break. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. Alan Watt, and we're cutting through the matrix. Just mentioning that, is it kind of odd, or is it quite natural that now, the last 
two or three years, and, and definitely for the last year, we've had Sir Crispin Tisk, Tickle, for instance, Tickle, as I always say, he's not a very funny guy, uh, who is, again, he admits himself an upper-class white elitist uh, who's advising Prince Charles, and he runs the Optimum Population Trust, an international organization. They have branches all through the, the, the world. And again, like all of them, they go under the United Nations. Every United Nations stipulates that every every government must have one of these boards on board government to advise governments. Now, that's where's that written in anybody's constitution? You see, that these greenies, uh, eugenicists, must be on their boards. So, Tickle is the one for Britain, one of the main ones for Britain. There's lots of them, mind you, apart from him, and in the U.S. They've disappointed John, John Holdren, and we've gone through John Holdren before, and his link uh, to the book Ecoscience he helped co-author with Paul Ehrlich, where he went right through the need to bring in a totalitarian society because they couldn't bring in their policies of eugenics and depopulation in a, in a society that had democracy. So it could only be done under a, a totalitarian regime, a world totalitarian regime. And that's what the United Nations was set up long ago to be. That's what the UN really is. I wish people could really see it for what it really, really is. And here's an article here, and I'll put the link up on my website at the end of the show. You've got to read it because it's one of the best written I've seen on the subject by someone who's done their homework. And it says, John Holdren and Harrison Brown. Again, who's Harrison Brown? Well, Harrison Brown wrote a book in the 50s. He was a friend of Charles Galton Darwin, belonging to the Eugenics Society. They both knew each other very well. And when Charles Galton Darwin, the grandson of Charles Darwin, was writing his book, The Next Million Years, where he said they'd have to depopulate and kill off all the unfit and inferior types, all the, they'd outbreed all the superior types, you found that Harrison Brown was doing the same elsewhere. He was writing his book. Every country, you see, belonging to eugenics was putting out the same book by someone at the same time. Same type of stuff, all the same stuff in it. What was it uh, that Harrison Brown had it in common with John Holdren? Uh, he was a kind of mentor to John Holdren, you see, top eugenicist. What did he say in the 1950s? This is just after World War II, when people were horrified, you see, at what the Nazis had done with the same agenda that they got from England, from London. That's where this depopulation, killing off the inferior types and species came from. So they changed their name over the years, when they went low for a while, and they never call themselves uh, bioethicists. It's a more pleasanter-sounding name. But they didn't simply wait until now to become bioethicists. They worked and created the Green Party and saved the world by, by regulating the planet to death. That's the people of the planet to death, literally to death. And this is what Harrison Brown said in his book. And there's also a tribute, I'll read two from John Holdren to Harrison Brown to show you they're both in the same camp. Harrison Brown says, The feeble-minded, the morons, the dull and the backward, and the lower-than-average persons in our society are outbreeding the superior ones at the present time. Do you think it's a, a coincidence that uh, psychiatry, a big, big tool of theirs, by the way, and psychology, uh, has categorized different people now with uh, different grades of autism, attention deficit, all things that cannot be really proven? 
They've, they've even got you down if you're bad at maths. You've got a, you've got a, a specific problem with math, then it's a kind of hereditary problem you have. You have a, an illness. You think that's all because it's like slapping terms? No, it's to categorize people. That's what it's for. The feeble-minded, the morons, the dull and backward, and the lower and average persons in society are outbreeding the superior ones, exactly what Charles Galton Darwin, his pal, was saying at the same time in his book. It says, is there anything we can, it can be done to prevent a long-range degeneration of human stock? You see, we're all degenerates at the bottom. We're, we're the junk genes. It says, unfortunately, at the present time, there is little other than to prevent breeding in persons, prevent breeding in persons who present glaring deficiencies, clearly dangerous to society, and which are known to be of hereditary nature. What do you think all this anti-terrorism is about? Eh? Danger to society. Thus we could sterilize, or in the other ways, discourage the mating of the feeble-minded. We could go further and systematically attempt to prune from society, that's cut from society, by prohibiting them from breeding persons suffering from serious inheritable forms of physical defects, see, genetics again, such as congenital diseases, and he starts off with dumbness and blindness or absence of limbs, dot, 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 that leaves all the rest of the category still to come, you see, unsaid. A broad eugenics program would have to be formulated, which would aid in the establishment of policies that would encourage able and healthy persons to have several offspring and discourage the unfit from breeding at excessive rates. That's from Harrison Brown, the mentor of John Holdren, in the book, The Challenge of Man's Future. Now, in China, apart from their one-child policy, that's only for the people at the bottom. I've read the articles recently where they're allowing the superior types who are up the class ladder to have more children. Says here, John Holdren, the science star of the U.S., has long expressed intense admiration one that bordered on hero worship of a man named Harrison Brown, a respected scientist from an earlier generation who spent his later years writing about overpopulation and ecological destruction. See, that's their big stick. It's all under the guise of ecology. In fact, as Holdren has pointed out several times, including very recently, it was Harrison Brown's most famous book, The Challenge of Man's Future, which transformed the young Holdren's personal philosophy and which inspired him to later embark on a career in science and population policy, which in many ways mirrored that of his idol, Brown. What did Hold, uh, Mr. Holdren actually say? He says, this is, this is tribute right here, from essays in honor of Harrison Brown. Harrison Brown's most remarkable book, The Challenge of Man's Future, was published more than three decades ago. By the time I read it as a high school student a few years later, the book had been widely acclaimed, The Challenge of Man's Future, pulled these interests together for me in a way that transformed my thinking about the world and about the sort of career I wanted to pursue. I've always suspected that I'm not the only member of my generation whose aspirations and subsequent career were changed by this book of Harrison Brown's as a demonstration of the power of and necessity for an interdisciplinary approach to global problems. That's the whole ecology, save the world stuff, and it terror is all about, by the way. Thirty years after Harrison Brown elaborated these positions, it remains difficult to improve on them as a coherent depiction of the perils and challenges we face. 
Brown's accomplishment in writing The Challenge of Man's Future, of course, was not simply the construction of the sweeping scheme for understanding the human predicament. That's what they call it. They used to call it the human problem. They call it predicament here. More remarkable was and is the combination of logic, thoroughness, clarity, and force with which he marshaled data and argumentation on every element of the problem and on their interconnections. It's a book, in short, that should have reshaped permanently the perceptions of all serious analysts. That's the hero. Uh, this hero is talking about John Holdren's, talking about Mr. Harrison Brown. Holdren's regard for Brown was so high that in 86 he edited and co-wrote a homage, that's the word I just read, to Brown, entitled Earth and the Human Future, Essays in Honor of Harrison Brown, in which Holdren showers Brown with accolades and unrestrained applause. At first glance, there's nothing remarkable or amiss with the picture. One respected scientist giving credit and paying tribute to another happens all the time, except in this case something is amiss, because Harrison Brown, whatever good qualities Holdren might have seen in him, was an unapologetic eugenicist who made horrifying recommendations for sterilizing the feeble-minded and other unfit substandard humans whom he thought should be pruned from society. You might think that these opinions would disqualify Brown as someone deserving praise in the modern world, but not to John Holdren, it seems, because Brown's views as Holdren himself has stated many times were the basis of Holdren's own world view. And then he goes on and gives you little parts of the book, Harrison's book, uh, further down the page. It's, it's just fantastic. It's absolutely fantastic. Well, well done. And don't think, don't think for a, min a minute uh, that uh, if you get rid of Holdren, which won't happen, by the way, he's there, like Mr. Crispin Tickles on the board for Britain's par uh, Parliament. Uh, Holdren's there because it's time for them all to be on board with government telling them what to do. You see, a coup took place a while ago. The first part was the war on terror to bring in all the machinery, the totalitarian society, and out goes democracy out the window, and thousands of laws have been put out since then in every country. Thousands of laws. We're getting trained that the more and more laws will come, and it's going to go right down to the breeding policies. That's what the whole environmental movement is about. It's a cover for eugenics, survival of the fittest, and their old mantra of culling off the unfit and getting rid of the inferior types who will simply hold them back. In Darwinism, the two are not compatible. When, when the obsolete type has done their job, got that ground ready for that seed of the tree to be grown, they've got to die off or the tree doesn't grow. They are the trees. You understand? You understand what's going on here? They are the trees. Your job is over. You ought to be culled and sterilized now to bring in their, their utopia that they've planned for themselves with a the reduced population. Very old agenda. It's a religion with them. The most fanatical religion that's ever existed on this planet that's already tried and been pretty successful in some revolutions like the Soviets, the mass killers that killed millions off. And the Nazis went, when they were pals together, they went to the Soviets to find out how to do the mass killings and do it efficiently. That's in the Soviet story. Get the video. And here they're going again. And they're, they're all... 
if you're not scared by now to see that they're officially appointed on every governmental board across the planet, then I guess you are the amoebas whose job is over. You must be if you can't see the danger. People have got to demand that all of these extra additives and boards that have been put onto government are kicked right out. Right out. No pensions, nothing like that, just out. Because they are a danger, literally, to society. To all of us. They are the terrorists. Now, I'll go to their phones now, and there's Lucretia from Oregon. Are you there, Lucretia? Good, good afternoon or evening, Alan. This, oh gosh, I'm sorry. I wasn't expecting you. Um, I wanted definitely to uh, uh, also be the third person to say let's all do a money bomb for you on Wednesday. Um, you know, I've listened to all of your programs, all 390, you know, two or so now that you've done, and all your blogs and all your talks with your other shows and some of them two or three times. It's just in such incredible information. And I thought, oh, gosh, maybe I've heard everything and I don't need to buy your books. And as you know, I've bought both your books and some of your, your CDs. And those books are worth ten times, ten times what you're asking for them. And with all my heart, they are just, the information is just phenomenal. It's totally different than what we all hear with all your your talks. I mean, the information about just even the meaning of different letters and the meaning of words. I mean, where the word heaven or where the word sin originally came from. I mean, there's so much that's just so fascinating you don't even go into in all these other 390 talks that you've done. It's just Phenomenal! I can't more highly recommend, you know, the people that are going to donate $20, $50, $100 to you, you know, do that, but also buy Alan's books. You will consider those as your most valuable possession. They are just amazing, just amazing. So I just want to encourage everyone not to forget on Wednesday to do the money bomb for Alan, and if uh, you don't just donate, Buy his book and even send him some extra because they're worth ten times what he's asking. I also had a quick question for you, Alan. You mentioned um, last week uh, Dr. Scott from Canada. I think it was Stanford. I didn't quite get the name. It's Don Scott, yeah. What is it? Don, Donald Scott. Donald Scott Scott from Canada. And did he write a book... um, or how did you, you, you mentioned the 70s, he wrote something about how they would take out the, the, the third world countries quickly, but the West mm-hmm. more slowly with crippling diseases. Yeah, he has uh, two or three books out, in fact. Uh, one of them is called, I think, the Brucellosis Triangle, how they use brucellosis for bacterial warfare, and actually introduce it into the populations of the Western world. He uses declassified information from the Canadian, U.S., and British governments to prove his points, uh, and uh, he's done a fantastic job on them. But, uh, the Brucellosis Triangle is one of them. It might even be up there on some of the book sites on the net. Okay, and, and so it's Don Scott, and uh, he's basically somebody that is telling about what they're doing. He's, he's not an insider, part of the programming, or part of the, uh, mm-hmm. the plot. But no, no, I can see. He, he, um, he 
doesn't know the, the rest of the story, he, he, but he's concentrating on a particular area, and uh, that's basically it. Some people get into a tunnel. They're very good, though. They can explain everything in that tunnel, and he's done a lot of research in that area of, of warfare, bacterial, viral, viral warfare, uh, and with the proof that it's been used on the public to prove a lot of the modern diseases were caused on purpose by uh, certain groups. Yeah. Wow. Then if I may just ask you quickly, just an uh, unrelated question. Uh, Gurdjieff and Ospensky, what did you think of their work, or uh, what do you know of them or, or of their work? I'm not really sure of that, actually. Um, okay. They just talked about gaining consciousness, watching your words, um, you know, uh, just even uh, not to be such a mechanical being, and I, I don't know their... You're, you're thinking of Gorchov, really, Gorchov and... Um, Ospensky? Gurdjieff and Ospensky. My mother was a, really loved them and, and did a, you know, a lot of study of them, and I was just wondering if you had any idea of... Gurdjieff himself, Gurdjieff himself uh, uh, these guys were all really um, offshoots or sects of um, Rosicrucianism, uh, the type of Rosicrucianism that broke out in the, the Ukraine-Soviet uh, areas uh, a long time ago. And uh, it isn't until you get into Gorchev, some of his statements, he also was an elitist who believed there were inferior types of humans. It's very well concealed. Back with more after these messages. Hold on, Lucretia, and might carry on with that. through the matrix, just uh, finishing up about Gorchov and so on. You can understand that all these uh, sects, these sects, um, were put out there to see a lot of common sense because they studied nature, meaning human nature, for about thousands of years. And uh, they can really intrigue the reader by how they, they present things. But remember, behind all of these sects, with their initiation rites and so on, there's, there's always the same agenda of of perfection of certain ones of them, perfectibility. And it's out of this whole movement that they moved into science eventually, and uh, through science and genetics they hope to bring in their, their perfect society, with themselves, of course, alive and all the rest, the junk genes dead, gone, long buried, you see. And, and therefore Gorchoff and all these guys, all these, even general Freemasonry, uh, are guilty of promoting the same idea of perfection. Most Freemasons haven't a clue. They think it's like a self-help thing, and you, you go up the ladder by perfecting yourself. They don't realize, no, they don't stop there. If you look at what the Masons have introduced, who do you think brought in the modern education system, which is an indoctrination system? Uh, a Brotherhood of Man. Is that familiar? Brotherhood of Man worldwide? Worldwide? The worldwide Brotherhood of Man? Uh, Trotsky was a Freemason. He wrote about it in his own book, My Life, and how all the other top leaders were as well, and the Trotsky side of it. And who's pushing the, the chip for uh, chipping the children wherever they go? It's done through the Freemasonic websites. Look them up. They're the ones who are promoting all of this stuff. It's like a church. Do you, are you supposed to leave your brain at the door when you enter the, 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 the hall? It's the same with Freemasonry. They should ask themselves that. Do you leave your brain when you enter the lodge? And you, you just 
only do what you're told and start promoting the things you're told to promote as an active and operative mason. I don't care people trying to perfect themselves in some way or another or read all the thousands of self-help books that are out there, but don't, don't go out deciding that you know best how society should be, live, and be ordered. That's the problem with all of these characters. And for here's another thing, too. I've told people about predictive programming through media. This is from the Population Media Center, the big one for all of the eugenicists, where they admit, and I'll put this link up on my site for you to see, they admit through different times of of, uh, entertainment, even soap operas, that they're brainwashing women to have fewer children and various other things. And how they came up with it, they tell you the technique that they're using. It's quite a fantastic article. It's called Lowering the Boom. Population activist Bill Ryerson is saving the world one soap, meaning opera, at a time. August 21st, 2005, by Pamela Paulson. And how they're even making these soap operas for people in Africa and India and so on. And the messages are all embedded in the stories. People get caught up in the story, they forget that that this is uh, an indoctrination, and they don't even know they're being indoctrinated, to change and modify their behavior. How can they use this? Because they use it across the West to create massive promiscuity. They brought on the pill to destroy the family unit. They brought on abortion, and we start to accept our own being killed off. That's the intention of eugenics. So I'll put this one up, Population Media Center, the big eugenicist site. From Hamish to myself, from Ontario, Canada, it's good night, and may your God or your gods go with you.